if none of us are using hyperbole, I'll say I won't, I wouldn't be here without her. <laughs> just wow. Hepburn, Hepburn was not just formative, but she was like an actual lifeboat growing up. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, I couldn't live without the Philadelphia story, I think. listening to the Brightwall Darkroom podcast, where we belly up with critics, artists, and our magazine's contributors to speak from the heart about film. I'm Veronica Fitzpatrick. And I'm Chad Perman. Chad, how's it going? Uh, I'm doing okay. Uh, how are you? You know, yeah, not the greatest spring, but still glad to be moving into warmer weather, new seasons, and so on. And we got the summer coming up and uh, various summer plans and all that kind of stuff right around the corner. So tell me one thing you're looking forward to this summer. Um, well, I don't want to officially jinx it before it's bookings are in the underway right now for our, our long planned Norway trip. So hopefully oh, we'll be getting to go. If we're able to do that, we'll be able to go. Nice. We have said that before, most famously in the spring of 2020. When, I remember when we were going to book this wonderful trip that uh, then the world canceled. Yeah, the, the kids are still uh, still in the house and and uh, <laughs> they've been there since 2020. Yeah, we haven't let them out. We were very very scared of COVID. Still <laughs> scratching the windows. <laughs> yeah, they've they've gotten no diseases of any kind in three years. Producer <laughs> uh, <laughs> Eli here, butting my way onto Mike to ask if you go to Norway, will you be? The worst permanent in the world. Oh, <laughs> I will be the worst permanent in the world. Yes, I'll be the worst permanent in Norway for sure. Oh, also the only one. But yeah, wow. No, it's exciting. I, I mean, I've uh, it was not on my radar for for a while. It's a place to visit, so I've gotten to look into it and kind of be like, oh wow, this is a really beautiful place. And you know, totally. The fjord, the, I don't know how to say that word. The fjords, the fjords. Yeah, no, that was the it. Fjords. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we got we got you got your fjords. You got your. <laughs> You got your uh, Norwegian culture. You got your Viking stuff. Yeah. Your Norwegian culture. What more yeah. could you ask for, honestly, from Norway? Yeah, but it's really good to see you. It's really nice to see you, too. Yeah. Sincerely. Sincerely. And especially to talk about one of our favorite actors. Yeah. I didn't know I didn't know how you felt about her, but yes. Big <laughs> Anti. No, I'm a huge <laughs> Catherine Hepburn fan. <laughs> Unlike our guest today, I'm maybe I'm not as sort of intimately familiar with her yeah. career, but I'm a fan. I will never forget first watching the Simpsons episode where Maggie is gifted equestrian Pepper. lessons and is doing her like mid-Atlantic. Oh, father. Like, I don't know. That's the most I'm going to. That's all you're getting. I'm not doing oh, any. That's not even a Hepburn impression. impression. It doesn't matter. I want it today to be all about the Hepburn impressions. Ooh, no. Well, maybe later, but not for me. And okay. anyway, I, I just love her style and her poise and her delivery, her humor, her physical humor, everything. I just her sneer, everything is really speaks to me. So I'm excited to yeah, get into it. That's the totality of it. Cause I know you wrote um on the on the doc here, why her why her now? Yeah, that's what I was just <laughs> gonna ask you. So it's the theme for this month's issue of Brightwell Dark Room. Mm-hmm. How did this come up at this point aside from just like that's how the Google Doc cookie yeah. crumbles? Yeah, uh, I mean it was somewhat of an organic process. We wanted to do an issue. Um we'd done Paul Newman last year. Yep. We wanted to pick a female artist, uh, whether an actress or a director or writer or someone, mm-hmm. to spotlight for this year because we tend to do about one of those issues a year. Mm-hmm. And so honestly, just had put we put together a list and took some votes the old fashioned democratic way. And Catherine Hepburn came out one vote ahead of Agnes Varda. So, whoa, interesting. That's why we are not currently talking about the Gleamers and I or whatever. Wow. <laughs> Eli shaking his head. Don't worry. We will do an Angus Varda issue. Um, <laughs> definitely on the radar. We've got about a thousand more issues to go, so she'll she'll find a spot. Catherine Hepburn is someone that you know, I've been fascinated with my whole life, so I had no problem embracing that. It's kind of a book-endish thing to the Paul Newman one because 
they're very different as actors, obviously, in all kinds of ways. But just the longevity of the careers that they both had mm-hmm. and the fact that they were both still making quality pictures in, you know, their 70s and 80s and just the kind of people that they were on Earth. You know, I know. Mm-hmm. You remember me last year just saying, like, Paul Newman's just, like, one of the best humans that's ever lived. A classic Chad understatement. <laughs> yeah. I like to play it low-key and just kind of minimize. Yeah. No hyperbole here. <laughs> but uh, Catherine Hepburn is just, yeah, just fascinating every every possible way, psychologically, biographically, her career in general, the way that she both kind of pushed the press away in all possible ways and fought, fought being famous while desperately trying to be famous and being really calculating how she went about mm. trying to figure out how to be and remain famous, but not having to play the game to get there. So, you know, the behind the scenes stuff, the way that she was doing all kinds of, I mean, she had set so many different templates um, mm-hmm. for possible ways to navigate a career. Um, there's a not wonderful new Netflix documentary called Call Me Kate. It's not terrible. Oh, I haven't seen it. It's pretty boilerplate um, mm-hmm. as the Netflix stuff tends to be. Um, <laughs> Netflix slam. Yeah. Fuck you, Netflix. Yeah. They're now called Max. <laughs> <laughs> flicks. Flicks. We're now Flicks. <laughs> but it's amazing more actresses did not follow some version of her career because of how mm. she did and navigated certain things and how, you know, and then just on a movie level, the Philadelphia story, which we're talking about today to speak in the modern parlance, it's been in and out of my letterbox for uh, throughout the years, mm. top of the page there. It's definitely in my top 10 movies all time. It moves in and out of my top four movies of all time. I just watch it almost every year. I just love it to death. And then a huge fan of bringing a baby and holiday and a bunch of other stuff too. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. And then my parents watch on Golden Pond all the time when I was a kid. So I don't think I've ever seen it, but man, has it been on a lot in the background. It's the perfect <laughs> Chad Brightwall Darkroom podcast bingo moment of this is what my parents had on when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to the parents. <laughs> That they taped off of HBO proper back when they used to give you the free previews. Oh. That was how we got all of our uh, Hollywood movies was, was taping the free preview weekend. So, yeah, we have a tape with On Golden Pond somewhere. If anyone wants to get a bonus uh, EWDR merch special, I will get our them platinum <laughs> Patreon. Tone all email at once. Sponsors will be receiving <laughs> the Perman's VHS copy of. <laughs> Authenticate it. I will authenticate it. (laughs) Our guest today is Dr. Kyle Stevens, an author and film scholar whose publications include the book Mike Nichols, Sex, Language, and the Reinvention of Psychological Realism, and the edited volumes Close Up, Great Screen Performances, and the Oxford Handbook of Film Theory. Kyle is a visiting associate professor of film studies at MIT And for a too brief time, we overlapped in the doctoral program at the University of Pittsburgh, where we drank a lot of Manhattans and watched a lot of Mad Men, and I got to experience Kyle's distinct cocktail of intellectual acuity and humor firsthand. In his article, Romantic Comedy and the Virtues of Predictability, Stevens looks to philosopher Stanley Cavell on the importance of language to romantic genres. For Cavell, he writes, quote, in the remarriage comedy, Properly exchanging utterances is both foreplay and endgame. He describes well the centrality of banter to the genre, whereby we know which love is true because of how speakers talk to one another. We're thrilled to have him here today to talk about talking, about mutual understanding as the symptom or the basis for discord and harmony. Please welcome Kyle. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Hi. (laughs) That's quite an introduction. Thank you. I really like writing them. <laughs> yeah. I like the thematic <laughs> talent. stuff with the Manhattans into the cocktail of Kyle. Yeah. Thank very, you. Very Those are yeah, Easter yeah. eggs. Yeah. Just, just <laughs> <for you. laughs> and 2009 Manhattans and Mad Men sets a I can picture that moment perfectly. So yeah, don't give it all away. We were <laughs> Occupy Wall Street was raging and we were just drinking our Manhattans. <laughs> <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> On our graduate stipends. (laughs) Just committed to those black walnut bitters. (laughs) Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. Oh my gosh. Kyle, how are you doing? I'm well. I'm really well. The semester's over um, for the most part. And so, you know, we can start uh, thinking about spring and writing projects and relaxing a bit. It's, It's nice. Amazing. I'm so glad that you could join us. I know that this is like Hepburn and Philadelphia story, both topics close to your heart. 
and your brain. And I'm just so excited to talk with you about this. Yeah, me too. I'm excited to be here. All right, let's introduce our film today. So George Cooker's 1940, The Philadelphia Story, is the film adaptation of Philip Berry's 1939 hit Broadway play, written for and around star Catherine Hepburn, our subject today. So we meet Hepburn's divorced socialite Tracy Lord on the cusp of her second marriage to George Kittredge. Assigned to cover the wedding are writer-reporter Mike Connor, played by Jimmy Stewart, and photographer Liz Embry, played by Ruth Hussey, who's also a native of Providence, Rhode Island, and an alum of Pembroke College, incidentally. Mm. Mike and Liz's outsider access to this exclusive society event is assured by none other than Lord's ex-husband, Cary Grant, as C.K. Dexter Haven, who seeks not to embarrass his former in-laws, but to protect them from the threat of a publicized scandal involving Tracy's philandering father. If it sounds complicated, it is... The Philadelphia story is a speedy palimpsest of callbacks and inside jokes, nicknames and double entendre, pitting legacy wealth against new money against no money at all. And doubling as referee and prize is Catherine Hepburn, poised to recover from her nomination as box office poison with the help in the form of film rights purchasing power of then-boyfriend Howard Hughes. So, Kyle, I want to get right into it. Tell me about your relationship to Catherine Hepburn, um, your sort of first brush with the Philadelphia story. How do these things announce themselves to your attention? It's such a big question for me. I mean, you know, as the kids would say, mother comes to mind. I mean, it's just, <laughs> she is mother. <laughs> as if, if we're, if none of us are using hyperbole, I'll say I won't, I wouldn't be here without her. Like <laughs> just wow. Hepburn, Hepburn was was really, really, not just formative, but she was, like, an actual lifeboat growing up. Wow. Mm. So, like, my parents, we got cable, and, but, like, you know, we weren't allowed to watch anything. I grew up in a, in a very religious conservative home in oh. North Carolina. <laughs> but I sort of, like, there was that, like, 30-minute window before, like, you know, when you got home from school and, like, your dad got home and, like, turned on basketball that you could, like, find stuff on TV. And, like, I, I, I was understanding that I really loved... Turner classic movies, right? And, and mm-hmm. like that I wanted more. And then eventually realized I could sneak down at night and watch this, right? Like while mm-hmm. they're asleep. And like Bringing a Baby was the first film that I fell in love with. And, and her too, right? And it's like, she's, you know, I'm a super little gay kid, right? And it's like, and there's something about that movie that's very provocative. I mean, I don't really know what I thought I was laughing at because now it just seems like the filthiest mm. double entendre in the world throughout <laughs> the movie. And I know I didn't get that. And I know I wasn't just like into a leopard. It's just a dinosaur bone. That's all it is. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want Miss Swallow? Um, <laughs> that's there you go. Um, but she is sort of like, she is like making fun of, of Cary Grant the whole time. And I had just like never seen you know, a woman on screen quite this, like, empowered, to, like, use a kind of cliched word. But, like, also, like, having fun, right? It wasn't, like, serious empowered. It wasn't, like, you know, big shoulder pads, 1980s kind of, (laughs) like, you know, girl (laughs) bousing as man. And I just, I really, I really loved it. And then, like, I found Holiday and Stage Door was Mm. huge for me. So, like, by the time I came to Philadelphia Story, I'm pretty sure that I had this kind of sense of of her as a pretty, like, as someone who in the movies would kind of have one over on the men, right, and make mm-hmm. fun of them, and it would be okay. So, like, I think that the many moments that now seem really ambivalent in the Philadelphia Story to me now weren't really visible to me then. I mean, I think this this is just a movie that has, like, lived with me over time, Philadelphia Story, I mean, and, like, changed so much. I mean, mm. one of my favorite lines now is... The father's line to her, I mean, he's, obviously he's a complete asshole, but he's like, you know, mm-hmm. you have everything to be a good person. Like, and part of that, what he says is like a disciplined body that does what you tell it, right? Mm-hmm. As a child, I did not understand the importance of that. <laughs> As I enter middle age and no longer have that, like, <laughs> this, is like the, this is the best definition that I've ever heard of something very, very real, right? Like a disciplined mm-hmm. body that does what you tell it. Like the screenplay is just phenomenal Mm, so good and so as I started to like get a hold of biographies and all of that stuff and was just kind of like really like cathecting to her as a child and finding in her whole persona like just ways to challenge what I was seeing in the world Mm. this this movie because it's at the core of her persona was like right there and then it's just it's a great movie right like it's just a great great movie and I, I loved romantic comedies anyway you know and this is like a whole love square not just a love triangle like I mean it just like ticks everything for me like there's no point in saying what's the greatest movie of all time, but I would say that this is probably the movie that if you did like a fuck, Mary kill of like 
all <laughs> film history. Like, I, this is the one that I would have. I would be left with this one. Like, I was like, I couldn't live without <laughs> the Philadelphia oh, story, wow. I think. We got the right guest then, for sure. Wow. That's a wrap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's enough. Yes. <laughs> That's plenty. Got the essence right there. <laughs> What do I want to ask you about this movie? Chad, you also, this movie is like a really like benchmark standout favorite for you. I'm curious for both of you, what is going on in this film that feels particularly representative of what Hepburn brings to the table as a film performer? And I know that none of us could have, you know, seen like her stage performance of the same role in the play. But I actually did. Oh, great. That's so fun for you. But mm-hmm. the in terms of just thinking about like how how she presents to camera and her line readings and everything, like what what do you think is going on here that is emblematic of what's going on everywhere else? Well, I mean, I would certainly start by saying that similar to what Kyle was saying, how I feel about it now was certainly much different than what initially mm-hmm. drew me to it. <laughs> you know, originally I just thought, um, I think I'm, I'm sure I must have mentioned it before because I, I use it too much as a way to describe like just the that idea of the the, the click of a well-made box mm-hmm. like it's such a it's such a well-made box <laughs> it clicks so well the clicks are all over the movie it's just one of those things where it's like it was kind of my idea of what a hollywood movie was and then of course i watched a lot of other movies from that era and they're not all the philadelphia story but everything just seemed like it couldn't be any other way and every piece fit perfectly and i was very confused as they seemingly were trying to like you know this is like teenage me I was like, I know I'm not supposed to be rooting for the guy mm. she's marrying, but am I supposed to be rooting for like Cary Grant, mm. who I just love as like the, you know, Cary Grant character? Or am I supposed to be rooting for Jimmy Stewart, who, you know, my mom had us watch It's a Wonderful Life at a very young age, which is another one of my favorite movies. So I was like, well, I think I, I like Jimmy Stewart and Cary Grant, but they're like two very different people, but they don't hate each other. I was like, I can't get a grip on what I'm supposed to be mm-hmm. rooting for here. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously later on, I'm like, oh, that's how Catherine Hepburn feels. But I also didn't know really anything about Hepburn beyond, you know, a couple of the screwball comedies that I'd seen. Probably never seen her in a straight, serious role, um, certainly at that age. So I didn't bring any real knowledge or baggage beyond just, oh, that's that's the the old lady in On Golden Pond. It looks like she knows her movies. You know, it's very early in my film career. <laughs> Like, oh, this is like, I decided to get into <laughs> classical music by listening to Mozart's <laughs> Requiem. It's like, yes. what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> but I was just like, oh, she was good back then too. Okay, this is great. Um, but no, I just thought like, oh, this I, I know this type of person from my life as a mm. not someone who grew up with a ton of money. I'm a West Coast guy, so she encapsulated uh, an image of what, you know, a wealthy East Coast kind of elite person was like. Um, mm. And that would have made me want to hate her, but I never hated her in the movie. So that was confusing to me too. I was like, okay, this character would be, you know, some version of insufferable or windbag in most other movies. She would be the one you're trying to get away from. Cause she's just so like brittle and mm. what's the point, but you never, she never loses you, which is a, you know, maybe Kyle can speak to that. I don't, I still don't know how she pulls that off. Having seen it 20 times. I'm like, okay, how, how is this character? Not someone that I'm hating the entire time. Oh, I have thoughts. <laughs> okay, cool. I want to get to those. <laughs> But the, the main thing that just drew me was the humor I, to end my answer was just, I just laughed so much at that movie the first time I saw it. That was honestly what I was looking for in movies. And I was probably getting it from Billy Madison one day in the Philadelphia story the next day. But Billy Madison is no longer something I'm returning to every year. And, and Philadelphia story is. I just have too much to say. No, don't worry about it. Say it all. <laughs> uh, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts, like in response to what Chad said, but then also back to Veronica's question. Sure. Because I think that a lot of her stardom is kind of, People were like were trying to work through their different anxieties or ambivalences between like, you know, like the U.S. always looking to like Europe for instruction on what's good culture. Right. And she had this kind of like old world sensibility. Right. The New England kind of thing and like the level, like the class and the articulateness and stuff. But then she's also just like such an individual. Right. Which is also like the kind of American thing. I just think that like everything you're talking about is like totally the reason she could be called box office poison. And then two years later, you have a box office champ. Like, it's just like yeah. people didn't necessarily know what to make of her, but the, but the effect was strong, right? Mm-hmm. Um, back to Veronica's question, which I'm not sure I totally remember <laughs> right now. <laughs> was it about her performance? Yeah, like, how is Philadelphia Story a good example of what she does best? I would say it's a good example in two ways. And I'm going to come at this through an anecdote that I always think about with 
with Hepburn, which was that later in life, she said that Meryl Streep was her least favorite actress. And I'm a huge Meryl Streep fan, right? But this, like, Catherine Hepburn was just like, oh my God, like, you just see the work. It's like tick, tick, tick. Like, you see all of this, like, thinking and the performance of thinking. And I'm like, that's kind of great. That's what we, like, that's what we want, right? We want someone, like, <laughs> kind of really being reflective about their, like, predicament and giving us all of that depth and reflection about self-presentation and all that stuff. But I think what Catherine Hepburn really does do well is like she's put in just so much work to have her acting be just so crystal clear and precise. And the characters never need a moment to think, right? They might need a moment to like respond to something hurtful, but they never need a moment to think. And I think that's such a part of like the feminism that really does come through. Like despite the fact that this narrative is really a lot of men beating her down, like telling her she's not a goddess, right? Um, Which is why I love George Cukor's direction. Like that one scene where... Kind of by the pool where they really like hammer home, like, mm-hmm. and she's like, Oh my god, do I think I'm some sort of goddess? And then Kyokura like pulls back and she's in this like complete Greek goddess robe, <laughs> like looking at this like ship, which is like a miniature in front yep. of her. Like, she literally, yeah. like, the film is like, She's a fucking goddess, right? Like, with columns <laughs> in the background, with <laughs> columns in the background, right? Like, it's yeah. just like, Do you think you're a goddess? And Kyokura's like, She is, like, like. So I think that, like, beyond the narrative, there's lots of ways that it's it's more complicated than just the kind of, like, beating her down. But that is still something that I think is at the heart of the Hepburn, like, mythos and persona. Mm -hmm. And um, being a nerdy scholar, I was going to read a quote from Andrew Baton's 1984 study, um, Catherine Hepburn's star as feminist. Amazing. It's so lucky that you had it right there with you. It was right here, open to the page. Is this such a classic study that's underread? I mean, Andrew Baton died of AIDS in 1994. Um, so he, he never, like, kind of made it into the academic scene in, in quite a way. So he only wrote for a couple of years, but it's a really good book. And what's, it's an important one in the history of um, star studies. What's it called again? Catherine Hepburn's Star as Feminist. Oh, okay. Not a, not a creative title, <laughs> but direct. Yeah, um, direct. Catherine Hepburn is the only star of the classical cinema who embodies contradictions about the nature and status of women in a way that not only resists their satisfactory resolution in a stable, affirmable, ideological coherence, but which also continually threatens to produce an oppositional coherence, which is registered by the films as a serious ideological threat. There is no other star, so many of whose films seem systematically dedicated to expressing animus against her or offering her as mm-hmm. a, quote, voice which has to be placed. Mm. And that, like, is the plot of the Philadelphia story, right? So it's, like, right mm. there. Yep. You know, I mean, I think Philip Berry understood. Like, this is why she was mm. labeled box oh, toys. Totally. And then let's, like, recuperate her and have the, the narrative arc be from goddess to human, mm-hmm. right? Like, her rebirth as a human at the end. Can I read one more quote from the Briton? Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. All right. It's kind of saying the same thing, but in a slightly different way. Hepburn's career is significant because her films act through a series of strategies all of them more or less contradictory, all of them crucially resisted and disturbed by the very fact of Hepburn's presence and designed to accommodate a woman's affront to destiny. How are the affront and the destiny to be reconciled? How is the affront to be punished, subdued, contained? The films are the most striking record in the popular cinema of the ideological struggles which these questions entail. I think he's right. When, we th- when I think about the great you know, classical actresses, it's like, yeah, Betty Davis had the range, and there's no question. But, like, Hepburn had the depth and a whole lot of ideological kind of resonance. Mm. Not, not to diss Betty Davis at all. But no. Just, <laughs> this is, like, why I'm, like, I, I'm just so, you know. She will get you. She will find you. you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm pitting strong women against each other. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. There's room for everybody at this table. <laughs> well, and, and we uh, published an essay on... Um, on Adam's ribbed earlier this week, and there, there was a quote in there from from Hepburn too, where it's fascinating to me because she was such a strong presence in crafting this film. I mean, in the character and the writing, yeah. I mean, you know, he'll talk about that. Yeah. And so when you think about this idea, she's like, okay, I'm having a tough time. This kind of you know silly magazine called me and a bunch of other stars box office poison. But there's clearly something about me that bothers people, even though I've won mm-hmm. like an Academy Award and all that stuff. She's like, so in order to, you know. I'm going uh, to meet with, you know, someone that I, that I met in college who I know is a good playwright. I'm going to have him write this thing, but I'm going to shape this character and basically make this about me getting slapped down, so to speak, or like taken down a notch or learning how to be human. And, but the, the self-awareness you have to have 
and also either the ambition or the humility, I'm not sure which one, to say like, okay, you know, America, take your shot, like watch me get beat up on screen for a little bit, you know, like metaphorically, as these people just kind of attack Tracy Lord, but Tracy Lord is essentially Catherine Hepburn. I mean, she talks about that all the time. You know, it's a mix of her and the actual person it was based on from Philip Barry's uh, circle of, of friends and acquaintances. But for all intents and purposes, she's like, I'm going to make this character me. Again, that's the magic trick of it to me is like, she wins by being, she never is not herself in the movie. You know, she's a really good Catherine Hepburn all the way through. But there's something about the arc that she goes through. And again, is that performative or is that like, no, I'm eating my humble pie here or whatever. Maybe I can be taken down a few pay. Whatever it was, it was just a, it's fascinating that she was so involved in shaping this thing where mm. these people were taking her down. And the quote in the, in the piece that I was reading was she's like something to the effect of, you know, people, <laughs> America likes that. Mm. Uh, she said uh, to most, to most men, I'm a nuisance because I'm so busy. I get to be a pest. Mm. Uh, this, she was talking about Spencer mm. Tracy here, but she says, but Spencer is so masculine that once in a while he rather smashes me down. And there's something nice about me when I'm smashed down, mm. you know, uh, which is, problematic in some ways with some of the language now but yeah i mean it's just there's there's just a lot of she recognized that she produced a very distinct feeling in certain types of people which is i want to destroy this woman and i don't even know why yeah. and then she still charms you which is like how is that possible in a movie i mean that, that's i don't know it's like when i got glasses and people liked me more <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what it's like same thing <laughs> it's the same thing <laughs> He's not mean. He's smart now. They just want to see you taken down a peg. (laughs) Every month on Brightwall Darkroom, we belly up with critics, artists, and contributors to speak from the heart about film, which got us thinking, what if we had a space like that every day of the week? A space where artists can go off script on love for their craft. Introducing Gallery, a new cinema club built by today's most celebrated filmmakers. Helmed by Indian Paintbrush, the folks who brought you the Grand Budapest Hotel and the upcoming Asteroid City, Gallery combines personal film collections, thoughtful essays, and live experiences into a single destination. Built by artists as a response and alternative to binge culture, Gallery is not a streaming service. It's all human, no algorithm. A communal cinema experience that celebrates the nuances so often missing in today's industry. And Brightwell Darkroom listeners are invited to receive early access before its official public launch. Gallery is shaped by many filmmakers that we love here at Brightwell Darkroom, including Mike Mills, Karen Kusama, Ed Lockman, Taylor Russell, Ethan Hawke, and Maggie Gyllenhaal. Members will enjoy access to these artists' hand-picked film libraries, as well as original videos, audio stories, in-depth articles, and exclusive live events. Because, like Brightwell Darkroom, Gallery is a community that believes movies are better experienced together. To join the club, go to www.join.gallery.com slash BWDR. That's G-A-L-E-R-I-E dot com slash BWDR. This is one of the most interesting parts of the, the movie to me. The yeah. sort of ambivalence about her strength, about Tracy's strength, yeah. about Hepburn's strength. The film seems to craft this narrative where her strength is constantly under attack by men, by her father, but also by her, like, her little sister who's sort of like mm. yeah, bought sister. into mm. her father's story about what her sister is like. You know, she seems under threat of, if not ending up alone exactly, like ending up with the wrong man and potentially divorced again. She's already sort of messed up one marriage, even though she, you know, it split up because Dexter Haven was drinking too much. So it's not exactly like her problem either. But that's on one hand. On the other hand, the film is obviously like obsessed with her strength. Like you were saying, Kyle, like taking the position of worship that is itself being critiqued on the level of the dialogue. I always think, I mean, it's such a dumb kind of like trivia fact, but I love the fact that she did her own dive into the pool in the film and that there wasn't a double. It's like, of course, like Hepburn too has like, the disciplined body that does what she tells yeah. it to. Yeah. And I'm, uh, yes, totally envious. <laughs> she was swimming into her 80s like that was in that documentary. Yeah. So kept swimming all the way till the end. Like she was very athletic always. Yeah, in Maine, like really cold water. Like, oh my gosh. In Maine. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Yeah. She's doing that like whatever guy method and biohacking herself. <laughs> 
I don't know. It's really interesting. And then at the same, there, you know, there's this whole idea that it's her lack of softness that needs to be sort of corrected or compensated right. for. I always wonder, like, do we sort of see her softened at the end of the film? I guess insofar as she's sort of allowing or inviting words to be put in her mouth when they finally make it to the altar and have this sort of like wedding redux to constitute a happy ending. <laughs> but at this, I, I just, I don't know. It doesn't feel that pat to me. I kind of think that there, there is at least that moment that we could, could point to where like her voice gets really high and girlish and she's just like all set. Like, and she, you know, like I, she does seem like softened, right? But it's like, you know, five seconds against the rest <laughs> of the entire movie. Totally. You know? So it's like, it's like, you know, yes, she gets her comeuppance, but like, does you know, like it doesn't feel that heavy. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I caught this rewatch was, I think she kind of gives away her strategy, both as Hepburn and as, as Tracy Lord, by commenting on Jimmy Stewart's, it's it's really fascinating how she's just so drawn. Like that's the first kind of like crack in the armor that I see is like one that she's searching out his book in the library, mm-hmm. uh, and then two that she's like, God, this is really beautiful. And like you can literally see her start to look at him on screen in a different way. Mm-hmm. And you would not have guessed that this like you know hoity toity like socialite person is going to be that touch. So that it's like, oh, there's a depth there. And then psychologically, of course, the first thing I was thinking of is like, oh, so this whole persona is a facade. That is, but but it's a defense. I mean, it's it's and but what she says about Jimmy Stewart's character, the writer, as she's talking about it, she said, "You talk so big and tough, but then you write like this." Mm. And she's like, "Which one are you?" And he's like, "Well, I'm both." And she says, "No, I think that you use the talk, the talking tough, to basically protect yourself because you're so sensitive." Mm. And that's if you look through, you know, some of her biography, she has plenty of reason, uh, both what happened in her life growing up and also the cultural environmental family that she grew up in, in terms of like those influences were like, you move on, you get through shit, you don't talk about it. Mm. But if you're a sensitive person who imagine she was deeply sensitive and you're growing up in a place where there's no way to express that. And then of course you go into being an actor where your whole job is to express things. Right. But then you become the type of actor who's known for being kind of well defended to, I guess, mm. use a psychological term there. It's just, again, that's just all extra fascination to me. I don't know if I have a mm. point beyond but noticing that like, oh, she's pointing out in him what she sees in her kind of a projection type of way. I'm also just, I mean, for later, just fascinated too with the Jimmy Stewart character and the contradictions of him too. He is so fascinating. She keeps calling him professor. Yeah. She needles him. Yeah. yeah the book that um, Veronica quoted from the the intro, the Stanley Cabell Pursuits of Happiness, where which was so important. He was like this like fancy Harvard philosopher writing about these Hollywood movies. So they got people to take seriously in a, in a time before people were taking them seriously, but he didn't know what to make of that. And um, it turns out that uh, it was really common for like dancing girls and like, <laughs> like showgirls in the early 1900s to call the piano player professor. Oh. Um, so like, she's like accusing him of trying to like, you know, play her, um, which is, oh, a I, hel- I think it's a helpful bit of context. Yeah. I had no idea. As I sit here with two professors. Yeah, that's right. Um, Can I ask questions? Yeah, of course you can. I'm curious what everyone thinks of the class politics of this movie. Like, because obviously George is the one that's most punished, right? He has to be, like, Mm -hmm. exiled from this world. And he's, like, the representative of the middle class, right? It's, Mm -hmm. like, the poor writer, artist, and photographer... Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like, those born to wealth. And, like, the climber is the one that's, like, absolutely not. So it seems like in a way that this movie, like, really reinforces some some real rigidity. <laughs> so mm-hmm. kind of, and, like, mm-hmm. everyone ends up with the person in their class, right? Mm-hmm. Then the other thing is that, like, no, but, like, there's all these lines, you know, like, Jimmy Stewart's, like, I learned that someone could be wealthy and still a good person. Like, there's this, like, I've been bothered by that in the past a lot. Mm-hmm. And this time it seemed like... It was clearer that George associates wealth with importance mm-hmm. um, and the other ones don't so that it doesn't become like a, an issue in the same way. But I and I want to talk about importance more, too. But I just wondered what your thoughts were about the class politics of the movie. It's almost like I think in the movie there's this sense of the psyche or the personality as being this like pie chart. And the more of it that's taken up with ideas about material sustenance or in the case of Mike and Liz or accruing wealth as in George's case, the 
the less space there is for like perceiving people mm. and having genuine connections, which is like false. <laughs> I mean, not like, you know, <laughs> like doesn't, doesn't have fidelity um, <laughs> and is not feasible in that sense. Wow. But the sort of insidious rigidity of the class politics in my viewing is always secondary to like hating how condescending Mike is. Mm. And I feel very strongly that I'm meant to like, you know, root for Mike as the person with the least wealth and maybe the most insight, but I just refuse to, I don't think he has the most insight. And for me, it takes too long in the Philadelphia story for him to become mm. charming. And the stuff that he says to her in the library is just like so horrible. And then also the way we see Liz reacting to what she sees of him leaving the library with Tracy. And we have that like horrible moment with the manicurist where she's like, did that hurt? And she's like, I'm used to it. So I think what I'm trying to say is that maybe like the sexual politics in the film tend to rise to the surface in my viewing more than the class mm -hmm. politics. They're more prominent, but handled with less insight. That seems um, fair. I, I agree that the sexual politics definitely come to the fore. I just sort of knowing a little bit about Cukor and I mean, he, he wasn't. I don't, I don't think he was, like, anti-capitalist, but he certainly made, like, kind of a lot of movies that came close. And I just always feel like this one's a little bit, like, I don't know if he's, if he's angry or not at the system somehow. Like, <laughs> I feel like at different times mm -hmm. it seems different to me. Mm -hmm. Maybe the Jimmy Stewart character is more, more like him, uh, the director. Because he, he seems to have a lot of mixed feelings about, mm. he's clearly got barely contained anger at the fact that people have this type of money mm -hmm. and yeah. that he's, yeah. you know, working hard and doing all the writing. But at the same time, if you're around that kind of stuff long enough, you do get a little bit swept up in it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then also he's realizing like, oh, I'm falling for this person who I should hate, which mm -hmm. I just think he's in a very confused time where he's having to reevaluate a lot of kind of his preconceptions. I think the only person who's not reevaluating a lot of preconceptions is, you know, CK. Dexter Hayden. Right. <laughs> yeah. He starts the movie by pushing her down, and, you know, and then he's yeah. Cary Grant all the way through, you know, and uh, I love that character. Um, cracks me up. I think he gives a really interesting foil to, to Jimmy Stewart, and I love that they're not enemies. Yes. Mm. But the dynamics, I mean, that that drunk scene, I mean, where they're... That's, it's just that's delightful. Just, <laughs> it's so good in so many ways. Like the chemistry, the, yeah. you know, the the burp or whatever that uh, that they didn't cut but out. That's between Cary you Grant. and your grandmother is like... <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Yeah. The hottest moment in the movie. Like. <laughs> I know. Yeah, when I teach this film, the students all mostly just want to talk about how they should kiss. That's really like all we talk about. Is oh my God, yeah. I don't teach this movie. I couldn't teach this movie. <laughs> if anyone didn't like it, I would cry and leave. That's yeah. <laughs> you get an F. <laughs> Respond to your feeling. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, is it like, are those satisfying politics, the idea that like anyone can be a presumptuous asshole, like of any kind of strike? <laughs> kind of, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, there's something kind of satisfying about it to me yeah. because that place of starting that, Chad, you've mentioned a few times of like, I shouldn't like this person or I should be suspicious of this woman yeah. or this family. I don't feel that when I'm watching it. Hmm. And maybe that's my mm. own like, I don't know, like barely suppressed, like economic aspirations or something. But I thought you were talking about psychology. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> but uh, but it is interesting. Like I don't know, like the fact that we immediately see them contending with the ideas that outsiders have about them. Yeah, which makes me wonder: is this just like 1940s? the Kardashians where mm. we're supposed to be feeling sympathy for the fact that they're so like surveilled mm. and fantasized about and misunderstood. Can I jump in here? Cause I feel like there's the, the more I rewatch forties films, even like citizen Kane or something, like, they're all trying to tell us that like, if you let the people who make the news create the news, there's no longer really news. Like that's not what mm. news is. You know what mm. I mean? Like, it's like, it's really messed up. And, and that's the frame of this movie, right? It's like Spy Magazine trying to, mm -hmm. like, create the story. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, like, what stood out uh, for me as most relevant to today was this idea of, like, okay, so what is, like, of national importance, right? Right. Like, like versus, like, it seems like it's about, like, privacy versus 
public or something, but it's like privacy versus importance, right? As mm. though that if it's not public, it's not important. Mm. We've seen how that works. We're living that <laughs> bullshit logic. Like, you know what I mean? Like if, that if it's not on Twitter, it doesn't matter, right? Like mm-hmm. I was thinking of like Michaela Cole's, like go sit in the silence and see what happens kind of speech. You know? mm-hmm. Like just, I was really taken back, aback by this kind of like the importance of importance and, and the, the whole like weird binaries that, that are being set up for the frame of the story. Yeah. There we go. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) I I think it's really interesting. So how does Catherine Hepburn fit into this theory of public and private importance? Ask Greta Garbo after they stop playing tennis. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I will say the private and public stuff that I do find really interesting, given the fact that the film um, has that no dialogue kind of slapsticky opening scene with her breaking the golf club, but then immediately cuts to the wedding announcement and then also ends with the snapshot that looks like it's capturing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Did you see like that was Mankiewicz's idea? Like, uh, no. And, and he, and he apparently, I mean, anecdotal, but I'm still going to, I'm going to say that it's true. Uh, went around for like the next 20 years saying like that, hey, I did that before Truffaut did. Oh. Oh, that's funny. I, the foreigner blows has got nothing on me. For Jules and Tim, was, that's funny. Yeah. Like, okay, yeah. 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 Huh. It is interesting. I mean, Hepburn obviously was famously private, but she did oh, still write yeah. an autobiography. She did give great interviews yeah. where she was super honest. My, my favorite Hepburn anecdote, and you can just cut this out. I'm just going to go with it now. Is when she was on the Dick Cavett show. Oh, that's that's what I'm trying to write about for this. I still haven't finished. Oh, really? It. The one she walked out on, and but like, yeah. When he he asks her about her sort of famous ability to fall asleep on set between takes, and like how she's able to do that, and she just immediately says, "Clean conscience." So like, mm-hmm. I feel like for I know it's amazing because I couldn't which, sleep last night, and not, I'm like, just, okay. <laughs> it's not true though. That's that's the oh, thing though. You can only believe that if you just refuse to ever do anything but keep going maybe yeah one thing is like imagine a star for like 30 years who not only had never been on a talk show she'd never been on television like i won't be on television and then she shows up to the studio and says i'm just gonna look around she just i mean if you want that glimpse uh veronica real life you guys haven't seen it there is uh like a 10 minutes of footage she agreed to let them air where she's just going around, she's testing the chair. She's like, no, I should sit on this chair. She's like, who came up with this carpet? Get this rug out of here. She's like, no one ever gets you the tables you need. It's just like, oh, I mean, she knows the cameras are on. <laughs> she did two TV movies before that. Do you just mean like interviews on TV? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, like being oh, herself okay. on TV. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And she had kind of, you know, there was that whole thing of like, probably she didn't necessarily want anyone to ask her about Spencer Tracy, though. I can't right. imagine a 30-year affair being basically... Agreed to not be covered by the entire press. That's the privacy issue, right? It is is her relationship of national importance? I mean, like this becomes mm, yeah. it's like not till the nineties till we reconcile or reckon with this idea that like is anyone's marriage a political issue of national importance? Right? Yeah. Like, I mean, mm. I guess I guess like mm-hmm. JFK, they left JFK alone too. So I mean, yeah, same idea. Like yeah. So yeah, you just can't even imagine that now happening, like in any way. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. before deep fakes or even a thing. So. <laughs> Sorry, I had to get deep fake on the podcast. <laughs> Catherine Hepburn deepfake. Oh, don't don't even don't even say it. <laughs> like, yeah, definitely don't say it three times in the mirror. Yeah, she's gonna be she's gonna be in several movies in the next ten or twenty years. I mean, it's just oh, gonna God. happen. Oh no. Yeah, the Philadelphia story too. Electric Boogaloo. Yeah, Electric Boogaloo. The the one thing I just wanted to wrap up with was what's fascinating about that interview too is you can kind of see this moment when she just is like makes a real like snap judgment in like five minutes based on very small interactions they're having of like, okay, this guy's okay. And then she's like, okay, let's do this right now. No audience. Let's just do this. Uh, and sits down on the spot and gives, you know, she, her legs are all like Kimbo and all over the place. And she's just totally casual, but she's giving some of the most fascinating answers. And he's like, have you ever been scared? And you know, she's like, I've been scared every minute of my life. One of the quotes I've certainly found true <laughs> with everyone I've known who fits the bill of intelligence is, she said, I, I think anyone who's intelligent is anxious or scared every second of their life. I mean, not not to brag, but I agree. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Same. And she's like, but, but what she did say, then to make it kind of casual and funny, she's like, I'm just a good cover upper. Yeah. But yeah, if you think of if you think of anxiety and fear as the actual driving force between her legendary 
mm-hmm. energy that she I mean, almost mm-hmm. everyone who knew her wrote about her, talked about her around her, talked about mm-hmm. an almost like unstoppable energy she mm-hmm. had to her at all times. And if it's, you know, if it's a special, you'll see her then on horseback and playing tennis, doing all this stuff. Right. Um, she was just, she channeled all of that into just trying to work as hard as she could on living a good life. Mm-hmm taking care of men that probably didn't deserve her mm. <laughs> taking care of them because they were such a mess. But she was very drawn to these people that, that needed caretakers. Like I didn't know till this morning that she had a long relationship with John Ford. That was news to me, but with Spencer Tracy, obviously. Mm. Yeah. And she basically just retired for, it's like Michael Jordan going to play baseball, but it was like her going to uh, take care of Spencer Tracy for four or five years and a pretty big partner career. She just retired to go take care of him. So yeah, it's just a fascinating mix of so many different Hepburns and they show up in that interview and then she does that famous thing, which is on Twitter every few months about, you know, she's like, okay, I'm leaving now. Goodbye. (laughs) Just get up and leave. And all of that is on the Criterion. Um, I found out as I watched that last night, it's on the Criterion. She's living the dream. Like I want to just get up and walk out of a room whenever I want. Yeah. And to show up and be like, let's just do this interview now. I'm I'm, like, this will, this will do. Yeah. And and Cavett like doesn't miss a beat. I'm, I mean, he fills two hours with all the questions people would want to know. So it's 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 wonderful. I feel like I should just leave now. <laughs> it's very, it's very very hard to watch. Don't, it's very very hard to write about. Don't pull a Hepburn. Don't do it. I'm glad we got to talk about that there because yeah, I'm just if I never get to actually finish that, it is a fascinating two hours that then I don't think anyone would regret watching. It is interesting listening to both of you kind of talk about this interview and knowing more about her kind of life off screen. It does sound like the Philadelphia story is the sort of cinematic exploration of some of these ideas mm-hmm. that right. are sort of in the atmosphere around Hepburn, like the methods and the motives for covering up something that she sort of accuses Mike of, or it's not really an accusation, but kind of charges him. And it's mm. it's not just a charge. It's like a Acknowledgement of recognition. Yeah, it takes one to no one. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And then also like this question of what constitutes natural behavior, Mm -hmm. you know, especially for women. And it is my favorite kind of moment in the movie when one of the instances of kind of like language play when the there's like this punctuational difference between to behave herself naturally and to behave herself naturally. And I don't think it's obvious kind of what each of those refers to, either mm. to like the characters in the film or to us thinking about like even just Kyle, like the way you were describing Hepburn's ability to present without thinking, like to react mm. without showing the kind of moving parts underneath the reaction. She's still intelligent, right? Like she's just like, yes. just so oh, quick. God. Yeah. Yeah. So intelligent. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, that I don't I don't really know what it means to behave oneself naturally. Mm. And I think as no. things get more, as you were saying, like mediated and public, or yeah. maybe as the public private distinction sort of ceases to obtain, it still feels like a very like yeah. present question. I agree. Yeah, and I know we don't have time for it, but we also didn't talk about just like all the, you know, political kind of outspokenness that that she got into over the the years, mm-hmm. you know. Um that was also a fast like she was a Yeah. Yeah. She did a lot. <laughs> she did um, a lot. She did a lot oh, and she did it well and she was super healthy. Uh and you know, that thing you th- no, that thing you put in the doc That's about true. like she wanted that cinematographer out of there because he smoked and she's like Oh yeah, yeah right. Doesn't like yeah, any yeah, smoke. Yeah. Like, yeah, I can imagine like now it's kind of normal to like be like, yeah, I don't know about people that smoke phone to be around, but like Back then, like everyone in the world was yeah, smoking. That's so true. Yeah. Jane smoking. She's like, no, nope, not around me. That's so true. She was a goddess and her body was the temple. <laughs> there it is. Should we last call it? We should last call it. All right. Typically, we end every episode asking our guests to share a quick staff recommendation. Kyle, I'd love to hear your recommendation. And this could just be anything, right? It could be anything. Yeah, yeah totally. Well, I mean, in the spirit of Hepper, I'm, I'm not picking one thing. In the spirit of Hepper, <laughs> If people haven't seen The Lion in Winter, I just think that that's just such an amazing showcase of what she can do in terms of, like, depth and comedy. And, like, I mean, it's just, it's every, it should be your favorite Christmas movie. (laughs) (laughs) Summertime is great. Stage door is great. Um, And then I'll also say that recently, I guess, like, two weeks ago, I saw Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, um, which is in theaters now. I've heard such good things about that. And it's really good. And it's not, it's not doing that well. So I want to give it a shout out. Kelly Fremont Craig, the director. It feels like a James L. Brooks movie from, like, the 80s. And I mean that in, like, a really, really good way. It's just, like, a really rich, uh, you know, I don't want to say portrait, but, like, a really rich, just 
depiction of this historical moment in the 70s and like female adolescence and in like a, a Rachel McAdams is incredible like degree yeah. of difficulty mother role off the charts like just yeah. just I loved it and so I would totally give that a oh, shout that's out fantastic. and can I ask uh, isn't that from the director who did the edge of 17 or am I yes wrong? yeah okay because that was also just way better than I thought it was going to be so I, I, I'm very excited to see this one only heard good thing I haven't heard a single bad thing about it so it's really good it's really yeah good. You can take your kids. You know, anytime you want to get me to watch a movie, you can say it's like a, a James L. Brooks movie in the 80s. Yeah, that yeah, hits right. pretty yeah. hard with our yeah. Yeah. crew. Yeah, give me broadcast yeah. news vibes. Come on. Yeah. No, I'll even yeah take a Terms of Endearment, whatever. All right. <laughs> what low standards you have. <laughs> Thank well, you so much, that's... Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> Fine, we can go out on that. <laughs> hey, it's not nothing but trouble, though, right? That's true. Yeah. Though I I watched that many times. Is it that, that, is it nothing but trouble? I I love trouble. The Julia Roberts Nick Nolte one. Yeah. Oh, uh, maybe it's I love trouble actually. Yeah, the musical that they took all the music out of and then released, <laughs> and somehow it didn't work. Okay. And I think Catherine Hepburn hated that movie if I remember correctly. <laughs> <laughs> that I didn't know. Is that did that come up in the Cabot interview? <laughs> yeah, that, that, yeah, yeah, they, yeah. A little time travel, but yeah. Oh my god. Anyway, Kyle, thanks so much for, for coming on the show. Uh, it's been really, really great to hear your thoughts on this. Thank you so much for having me. This was totally yar. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> I have another question. Where can we find you online? <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's what it says in my script. This is an issue of privacy. Um, <laughs> on Twitter. Um, All right. Cinnamentalist. Cinnamentalist. That's yeah, good. I like, like it. Cinnamentalist. Yeah. There it is. Give him a follow. <laughs> yeah. Cool. To read this month's Hepburn issue, visit us at podcast. And you can also subscribe to our newsletter for the latest updates on every issue. And as always, never going to stop bothering you guys. If you like the show or even if you don't like the show, please tell people about it. Truly, truly, truly is the only way that we really get more ear earballs, earballs on the show. Eyeballs. Let me start that one over, Eli. No, no, no. We're keeping that one as is. <laughs> no, 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 no. So we get more earballs on the show and then we then you think Gallery wants to be like follow that. That's one and done. Yeah. <laughs> That's gold. Please subscribe, share, rate, review, tell everyone you know about it especially if they like movies. Uh, it's the only way to help us keep kind of going and growing and uh, bringing you more content, which is what we exist for is content creation. Great. Our theme music is composed by Chad Perman. This podcast is produced and edited by Eli Sands. Bye. Bye. Just a quick pronunciation. Is it Ruth Hussey? Is that how you say it? I believe so. Okay, cool. Great name. <laughs> New drag name. I know. I was like, Ruth, uh, what is this? Like, I've never said this out loud. Hussey. <laughs> right now, I know. What, could, what else could it be? I don't know. A sussy. Cut down my shocked laughter. Uh, <laughs> okay.